Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today I'm very excited to welcome a guest that I've been listening to since back in the 1900s. <laughs> he is a founding member of the band CKY, current member of 96 Bitter Beings. That's right, my guest today is Darren Miller, one of the most original guitar players in my lifetime. We're going to talk about the old band, the new band, the new album, and the new tour. This is Darren Miller. Okay, you ready to go right after I flush? Yeah, sure. Okay. But you know what? If it's yellow, keep it mellow, so I won't flush. <laughs> yes. California <laughs> drought. I like your shirt, though. Thanks. I, I figured I'd dress for the occasion. <laughs> I got this at my first job. I worked for like a month at Azumi's. I used my discount to buy two, yeah. two CKY shirts, this one and the, and the black and white one. Now, I remember because of Volcom, we were in so many strange stores like in Zoomies and uh, Banana Republic. It was just fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, man. It was a weird time. So I brought you on because you've got this big tour coming up with 96 Bitter Beings. Mm -hmm. And fans are going to have chance for meet and greet passes, to watch sound check, video guitar lessons, all yes. kinds of cool shit. But... I do want to talk about your, your journey because we, we like to go all the way back on the podcast here. I was first exposed to your music on, at the time, it was called Land Speed CKY, mm -hmm. which if anyone is wondering the timeline here, I had it on VHS. So that... It's like 99? Yeah, yeah. 2000 um, maybe? I think I had just seen Toy Machine, Welcome to Hell, was like the gnarliest skate video that I had seen. And then jump off a building. Yeah. 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 And then seeing CKY was just like the greatest thing. It's fucking punk rock. It's crazy sketches. It's skating. It's like everything. And it had the greatest soundtrack. It, it was a punk attitude, but we weren't a punk band. So I think that's what made us stick out a little bit more. You know, when jump off a building came out, Fairman's was like the local, skate shop in westchester yeah i don't know even know if they're still there i hope they are because that was like the coolest shop and they put up some money for band to do his own little video and then for the fairman's video we did an instrumental version of our song close yet far mm -hmm. that was known as the fairman song because we just did the instrumental we didn't have lyrics or anything that song was recorded during a session at studio four called the gold tape sessions and we put that song in the Fairman's video, and we got so much mail <laughs> from people that waited. Like, back then, people used to actually wait until the end of the video to see what these songs were. Yeah. And um, we would get all this mail. I guess we left um, our address or P.O. box or whatever, and we got all this mail about this song. It was just an instrumental. And they said, what is this Fairman song? How do I get a copy of it? And then Jump Off a Building came out. Again, the most popular part of the video was Bam's section. And I remember being in Bam's bedroom, the same bedroom that we did the CKY documentary when I got the hat on and I'm talking shit about everybody because I was a total asshole. <laughs> it has like a him poster in the background, but that was his bedroom. So anybody that watches the CKY documentary from that group of DVDs, uh, CKY. Yeah, the box set. The box set. Yeah, yeah. there's a CKY documentary on like the how to rob a house. 
And I remember being in that bedroom and I said, Bam, don't you think it's, he was young. I was young. We didn't know. I was just, we were just talking. And I said, don't you think it's weird that like, you know, the segment that you did on the Fairman's video was bigger than anything else on there. And then the jump off the building thing, like, isn't it weird that your segment on that video is the most popular part of that video? And he was like, well, yeah, you know, but these guys are like huge skateboarders. So I was like, yeah, but you know, those segments are like more popular. Like the internet was in its infancy, but everybody was talking about them online. Like bam segment with Phil. I forget what Phil was doing. Something about a bathtub. I, I don't remember, but I said, why don't you get somebody to give you money for us to do your own video? And then from that, we encouraged each other. Oh, why not? He got in touch with Rob Erickson at Toy Machine, and Toy Machine financed the first Landspeed CKY video, Can't Kill Yourself. That's rad, man. I didn't realize you guys kind of... I mean, I always sort of thought from the outside of like, oh, that's cool, like the videos help make the band known, but you kind of help make the videos too. We helped each other. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, because at the same conversation in his bedroom, he was like, well, what would we call it though? Two weeks, a month before that, we had just officially changed our name from Oil. And then for like a week, it was I Dismember Mama, which <laughs> is a whole movie. Because I was into My Bloody Valentine, which is a horror movie. Yeah. And I said, how cool is it to have a horror movie name for your band name? And I said, I Dismember Mama is a really cool name for a band because it was this really cheesy old uh, horror movie from 1972 that God, no one's to this day, no one really knows about it. You'd have to look it up on eBay. But at Amore's Pizza in Westchester on Gay Street, <laughs> not too far from where I lived, Jess and I went in there and we're like, I just remember the mom was not really cool. We did a Christmas, a funny Christmas uh, EP that we did on our four track with Brandon DiCamello. And we sent it out to the Philly, Philadelphia newspaper to get reviewed in their their music section. <laughs> and they actually reviewed it, which is really funny because they didn't review our gold tape. That was we were serious about. So wait, what, did, what did Dico do on the record? On the Christmas demo? Yeah. He did a bunch of shit. Like we were all in Jess's bedroom and we had the four tracks set up to do vocals. But for all the music we did in the basement of 899 South Concord in Westchester, which is the infamous house where everything happened. So we did all the music on four track in the basement. We brought the four track upstairs to do vocals. We set up the mic and we did all this different shit. And like we did 12 days at Christmas and um, up on the rooftop. And um, we sped it up to sound like the chipmunks. We did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And then the one that, survived that four track nightmare christmas ep was santa claus is coming yeah we're at the like i'm gonna kill you (laughs) so we did that song on the christmas ep i can't say it was well received because there was nobody to well receive it it was it got a horrible review from philadelphia (laughs) they they thought we were being serious so we laughed at their review because they didn't realize that we were making fun of them making fun of us so we decided that um, Santa's coming, I'm going to kill you. And that song we should properly record. And we started doing volume one at the Groundhog in Holland, PA. 
And that wound and like, up on volume two, didn't it? Yeah, it did. When we were doing volume one, we always had time when we weren't like working on specific songs. We fucked with different things. And then yeah. we said, let's do the Santa's Coming song for real. We recorded it and we recorded another song, song called Shippensburg. Yeah. I had written that we knew wasn't going to fit on volume one. So like, we're like, let's just put it on volume two, you know, because Land Speed was, they wanted a two CD soundtrack set because our album was going to be ours and volume two was going to be Land Speed's soundtrack. Okay. So we did Shippensburg and Santa's Coming. And we had those songs without vocals, and Bam ended up singing on both. <laughs> yeah. He, he did Santa's Coming, and I did some backing vocals. And then Shippensburg, I did my vocals first, and we were cool with the song. And then Bam loved Shippensburg so much because it had to do a lot with Chris Rapp because Chris Rapp was going to Shippensburg University. Mm-hmm. So Bam liked Shippensburg, even though I thought it was kind of hokey, uh, too grunge for, for CKY. And um, that's why there's a BAMS version of Shippensburg out there. Okay. I've heard since he did it. Well, and then, of course, the biggest standout from that era is 96 Quite Bitter Beings, which <laughs> the song that you guys are probably most known for, to me, it's one of the greatest rock riffs, period. But I mean, especially of our generation and kind of introduced the world to your style. Like, you have that guitar tone with the octave effect you had the parker fly like you had a very signature thing going on and it had a little bit of like jimmy page a little tom morello sort of like a chromatic thing going on i'm curious how did you find your sound as a guitarist because it's been a consistent thing through your career is is your voice as a guitarist well it had to do a lot with ace freely who wrote single note songs like Parasite, single note riffs. I like songs that had chords, but the songs that I liked the most that had single note riffs. Yeah. You can write a song around chords as long as the vocals and the melody of the vocals is strong. I liked single note riffs. I didn't like to use chords. And at that time I was listening to bands like Death, who had put out an album called Spiritual Healing, which most of that album is all single notes. And then I got Ace Freely, like Parasite. And then he had riffs like. So I got all interested in like writing songs that were made up of single note riffs. Yeah. There you get so much melody out of the guitar and then the vocals could be just as important instead of the vocals have to be all important and the music that's underneath is whatever. So my style of songwriting was all about let the guitar grab the most interest and then the vocals are just like an extra bonus and when they go together it becomes one song. So 96 Quite Bitter Beings, that was the last song actually written for volume one. Really? Yeah. We had nine songs for volume one and then we removed Shippensburg and I said I have this killer riff and killer song and me and Jess actually worked at UPS and we called out of work at the same time which they knew we were in a band so they're like (laughs) calling out at the same time they're up to something you know we didn't care you know we called from a payphone at Nussex Farms which was like a 
bakery kind of Linville Orchards kind of autumn place where they bake pies and it was always fall or whatever. We found a payphone there. We actually said that we were both coming home from the studio and we got in a car accident. Oh. So we're not going to be able to make it into work. And because of that, we didn't get fired, but we went back to the house because we were in the middle of writing that song and the basement was flooded where we usually rehearsed. Yeah. Where all the equipment was. The basement had flooded before we started writing 96 Way to Breeder Bing. So we brought all of our equipment upstairs and put it in April and Phil's bedroom. <laughs> Drums, the four-track recorder, everything. And we demoed the song in their bedroom. Wow. And we were like, man, we're on to something here. I didn't think much of it more than, wow, we're going to be able to like have another song on the album and we'll be able to get rid of Shippensburg. Like, I didn't think it was anything special, but once we demoed it and I got a copy of the instrumental tape from the Groundhog where we were doing the record, and I listened to the instrumental tape, and that's when I came up with the lyrics. And I was like, almost like rapping with it. I didn't know what to do melodically with it, so I kind of just like... Yeah. I just wanted to make it choppy with the music, but there was no real song structure. I mean, it was like verse and then no chorus. Yeah. A bridge, but no chorus. So like we, we were like, maybe the guitar riff is the chorus. It kind of um, is. It's, it's like how uh, Fat Mike from No Effects talked about how like he doesn't understand why Linoleum was their most popular song. Like, yeah, it's track one, but he's like, it's just like a long verse and a bridge. Like it, there's no hook in the song at all. But. Yeah, because when you're in a band, and especially back then, you know, not as much now because everybody's looking for something that's refreshing and nothing is refreshing right now as far as I'm concerned. But back then we were like, your song has to have an opening, a verse, maybe a pre-chorus, chorus, bridge, chorus, end. Yeah. And I wasn't like extremely conservative or stuck to any kind of songwriting I was just like, well, let's just do what we do. And that's what freed us up from what we were trying so hard to do, which was to commit to that boring, generic song structure. So when we started doing volume one, we threw all that away and we were just like, let's just do what we want to do. Yeah. And I think there's something really innocent about a, a, a young band on their first couple records and figuring shit out because like you do it long enough, you know, all the tricks and structures and stuff and there, there's something really cool just about the group figuring shit out as you go. And like, if you listen to volume one, it's really raw and kind of chaotic. It's abrasive. It's dynamic. You know, it's all over the place in the best ways possible. You know, we were young and that's a good point. We were young. We didn't have any concept of let's, we shouldn't do that because that didn't work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. So it was all about, what we want to do. And I didn't understand the power of that. I didn't understand the power of like, if you actually do the kind of music that you're passionate about and you are obs like obsessed yeah. with doing what you want to do, people are going to notice because you're not going to let them not notice. You're going to do whatever you can to get the attention from people. And I couldn't do that. Me and Jess couldn't do that before because we weren't doing stuff that we liked. So we weren't able to like push it because we didn't even want to push it ourselves. Yeah. So also, you know, some people call it raw, but it's very produced. It has so many 
different layers of all kinds of sounds and stuff. But the reason that all the songs on that record sound different is because we would do one or two songs and then run out of money. And then uh, the guy that was uh, controlling the groundhog would cut us off and say, come back when you have more money. So we would work at UPS, get some more money, save up some more money, go back, set up the drums again, do yeah. another song or two, run out of money. And then when we got nine or 10 songs, um, they all ended up sounding different because we broke down the drums and reset them up all the time. So every song ended up sounding like a different session, Interesting. a different band, all that stuff. It wasn't finance. My dad gave us a decent chunk of money yeah. to finish it. I remember my very first studio recording, you know, we'd done stuff on four tracks and whatever. And, and then you, you go to the studio and you've got your measly little budget. And I remember we ran out of money before we finished and we still had to mix it. So like we had to borrow money from our families too, just to finish the record, you know, that's yeah. depending on how quickly you want to get it done. You either ask somebody or beg somebody to let you borrow money or you go back. If you're not in a hurry, you go back and you work and you save up the money to go back. But yeah. volume one was completely self-financed by working at UPS, loading trucks. It's a fucking horrible job, but it paid well. Yeah. We used all that money to record. And then when it came to the point where, okay, we got to get this done because we're doing the, the land speed video, I asked my dad for some money. And he was like, yeah. Well, he was like, well, what is this for? I'm like, well, dad, I'm a musician. He's like, ah, why should I give you money? I'm like, look, I'm not, a, I'm a cheap kid. You didn't send me, <laughs> I'm not going to college. So just give me some money so yeah. I can do this. And he agreed and he, you know, he was open-minded and he, he gave me the money. And um, we went in and finished it. We paired it up with Land Speed, got all this, all the material for the second CD, Volume 2, together. Mm -hmm. And we put it out with the VHS and immediately was a huge success. And from there, we started getting a, a lot more mail, started getting checks, started getting interest from one record company, which wasn't even really a record company, but only one. It just proved to me at the time that record labels weren't paying attention because we were doing so well. Yeah. Volk Volcom Entertainment, which was a new label that Volcom Clothing was starting up, and they decided, hey, they were a skateboard surfing, mm -hmm. you know, entity. They sold all, you know, skate clothes, surfer clothes. They were, they were that kind of company, Volcom, and. Um, they were like, what's going on? What's going on? So then it started to increase in interest. A little bit of money started coming in. I was in a situation where I was living in Westchester, right by that Amore's Pizza on Gay Street. And I was living on East Barnard Street in a really shitty part of town. I One time I went, um, I was coming home from work and I tried to pull into the garage that I lived in the house I lived at. And there was a dead guy in there that overdosed. Oh, my God. I had to deal with that every day coming home from work. There'd be people sitting on my porch that were like so fucked up. And I was like, can I please get into my own house? <laughs> like, they would say things like, what's the magic word, motherfucker? And I was like, um, can I please get into my own house? <laughs> and that was the house that my girlfriend chose to buy. And then living with her for a while, she started to get crazy and a little bit like scared because the band started to get big and like, it looked like we weren't going to be able to stay together. Yeah, And she started acting really weird and jealous and all that stuff. So I said, you know what? I got to get out of here. So with all the money that Volcom had sent the band, I saved up enough that I flew out to California 
and I found myself a really nice three-bedroom townhouse apartment in Costa Mesa. It was like a five-minute drive to Volcom. So I was able to say goodbye, ex-weird girlfriend. I'm moving out of your house. And I took my dog, and we flew across the country. I moved into my apartment. We had seven people in a three-bedroom apartment. Did the band move with you? Vern, our old bass player, lives with me. Yeah. Our friend Michaelia, who was a girl, she was trying to be an actor. She was in that Bruce Willis movie, Unbreakable. She oh, really? The, he played the babysitter. That's cool. My brother lived there. Vern's friend, Ryan, lived there. And then a Volcom employee, Jason, lived with us as well. So it was the seven of us. If I missed somebody, believe me, it was seven. Seven of us, two to a room, and then somebody slept on the couch. Yeah. And I was only allowed to have two people at most, my landlord. <laughs> of said. course. But I said, if you're going to come over here, you better give me 24 hours of notice. That way I could clear everybody out, get rid of the animals and all that stuff. But I stayed there and, you know, worked with Ryan Emigard and all the guys at Volcom and Chad would fly out. And then eventually he got a place uh, in Huntington Beach. And then Jess was the last holdout. He didn't want to leave Westchester. So Chad and I took care of everything as far as the label and they put us on um, the warp tour, even though we weren't allowed, but Volcom had a stage. Yeah. On the, but they didn't, but the warp tour didn't necessarily want us to play. I think that Volcom had to have the bands they wanted to play on, on their stage cleared through the warp tour. Yeah. Through, Evan Lyman wanted to know, okay, you have your stage, but who's playing on your stage? And I think that they didn't, I could be wrong, but it's something similar to this. They didn't know who we were, and they weren't sure that they wanted us to play, but we did anyway. And then we got kicked off the tour. Oh, really? And we ended up coming back as Calvin Klein youth. And <laughs> <laughs> they didn't put it together. And it's funny because That's I funny. remember when we were on stage, there was a bunch of security people looking around to make sure CKY didn't get in because we would climb the fences and stuff. <laughs> But there we were on stage as Calvin Klein youth. That's but great. They were, can't kill yourself. So it was just hilarious. While we're sitting there playing, we have all these people like looking for us to make sure we don't get in. But that was like the funny stuff. And like from there, it was just history. And then finally, some record labels started to find out about us. And then Island Def Jam yeah. ordered us MCA. Well, let's pause for a second because what I'm curious about is you know, we talk about this kind of immediate hit with the video and volume one but what, what were the shows like because the live footage in the cky movies looked fucking insane were you guys playing smaller shows before that happened or did it all kind of happen we were, at once we were playing skate parks and traveling around like we weren't touring per se like we weren't like going around the country but like we were playing like skate skate parks and I remember, like, we did this show in Portland, Oregon. Oh. While after I had moved into my, into my apartment, Volcom started setting up shows with us at, like, the Tiki Bar, which was it's a, still there, as far as I know. And I played there recently because, not recently, I'm thinking, recently, like, eight years ago. Yeah. I had 96 Bigger Beings play at the Tiki Bar because that's where Volcom used to have their party shows. We used to have Volcom parties at the Tiki Club. And these shows were incredibly chaotic. The stage diving and 
just, you know, once everybody in the audience had uh, one or two few many you know yeah it's not like today where like you're not allowed to stage dive you're not allowed to mosh you don't hold your phone up to the band so you can watch like be in the moment don't tape it so you can watch it later enjoy it then so yeah it was it was a different time back then where live shows were so much more fun than they are now but um there's so much footage out there that i don't know who has it i'm sure chad has it just has it i have some stuff but it's hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage that nobody's ever seen with us at our best and at our worst. And it's all entertaining. But yeah, those shows shows were chaotic. Even that live DVD you guys did put out live at Smalls is so fucking hard to find. I've, I've had like alerts set on my phone for that for like 10 years and you can't find it for less than like a hundred dollars. It's insane. It's wild. We only like a thousand of them. And you know, I, I have one I could repress it, but you know, it's on the list. There's so many things that I want to reissue. Yeah. I think you can watch it on YouTube if you want to watch it. I'm sure it's on there. The live album was released on Bandcamp and on, like on Amazon. It's called Live at Mr. Smalls, like a live album. It was really good. It was a show where we went to Pittsburgh and we sold out. We, we said, look, we're going to do two sets, an hour each, maybe more. And we're videotaping it. And recording it live and we literally did like 22 25 songs maybe Damn. and then we picked the best to edit into one concert but even then like on that live at mr small's dvd cd two disc set you can play the four extra songs that weren't included in the live set you can watch them too so nice it, it was a big show you know we we said we're gonna do a lot we're gonna do a lot of material and I remember being excited because we were going to cut the show into two pieces. Right? We'll get one hour done, take a break, stay here. Everybody stayed. Yeah. Took a break, came back, did the second set, and that's where that DVD came out. But yeah, it sucks. That's it was great. only a thousand copies. It should have been much more. But I think that because of our record deal, we weren't legally a- allowed to release live videos on DVD. Yeah. So I tried to keep it on the down low. I try to say, oh, you know, we made it in Japan or whatever. Or it was a bootleg. Well, that yeah, that explains why I could never find one, man. Yeah, it wasn't distributed. It was available through us. But we, I think the thing we said was is that, oh, oh, my God, somebody bootlegged our show from Mr. Small. They gave us a thousand copies to let us sell, but we didn't do it. Yeah, somebody professionally recorded our show without us knowing. <laughs> yeah, they recorded it and filmed it, and you know, oh my God, thank God they printed it up and they gave us some copies, so they're there, they're letting us sell some. Because Island Records, they didn't want to give them money to uh, film this show, but at the same time, they probably didn't want us to do it ourselves and sell it. So yeah, we were like, if the label doesn't want to pay to, to videotape one of our concerts, why can't we do it ourselves? Well, because the contract says you're not allowed. But yeah, that means. Nobody gets to do it. So we were just like, fuck it, we're going to do it. And if we have to suffer consequences, then we'll suffer them later. But we got away with all of it, so it's fine. So we mentioned Island Def Jam. I want to talk a little bit about IDR, uh, Infiltrate, Destroy, Rebuild, the second uh, proper album, I guess, or, or third, if you're looking at Volume 1 and Volume 2. I remember being so stoked on that because CKY2K had already been out, and you're hearing the sort of like demo versions 
of your guys' new shit, you know? And then we get to finally hear the fully produced stuff. And I, I distinctly remember turning on the first track and being like, oh shit, it's like, it's like a legit sequel. And then when you guys did the beat drop and you hit that high note going into the first chorus, I was like, oh my God, fucking sold. Like me and all my friends in that band, we were just in... in Hellview, is that what you're saying? Yeah, on Hellview, man. We oh. were fucking in love with that. Like, we were always away. You know, like that whole shit. Like, we, we never heard you do some shit like that. It was it was a sequel to 96 Quite Bitter Beings, and I wrote that song while I was watching Pee-wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> nice. And that one, while I was still living in Philadelphia, I wrote that song. I remember I was watching Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and then I was watching a movie, a slasher movie called Mad Men which was one of my favorite slasher movies. And there's this really cool campfire song that is the basis of that movie. And that's how I came up with the... I came up with like a campfire type theme that went with their... You have to watch Mad Men to understand, but I was watching two movies. One night, sitting in my bedroom, my ex-girlfriend was bothering me about something. I locked her out. I was watching Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I wrote a little bit of the song and then put on Mad Men, and then I came up with that. And then I demoed it really quietly in our living room, so I didn't want to wake anybody up. We had a bunch of roommates. And I demoed it really quietly, and I did a little, like, scatting of vocals and a vocal melody line. And that was, like, one of the last songs recorded for IDR as well. But we didn't know. After Volume 1 came out and we had a little bit of money, we would start going to friends' houses that had better equipment yeah, and doing demos for like sporadic movement and fleshing a gear, and we didn't know what these songs were, but we did better demos of them. And then I would just like write a couple lines. Maybe Chad wrote a line or two in fleshing a gear, but it wasn't called that. It was called like gears and flesh or something like that. I forget. But it just kept being the same thing repeated over. They weren't finished songs, but once Bam got a hold of them, he was like claimed. They're mine. Yeah. You, know? you can hear differences in the tempo and the vocal There's, and things like that. Remember, like That demo version of a Flesh and a Gear that's in CKY2K, I guess. Yeah. It wasn't even a song. It was like 30 minutes. But he just used it. He liked it so much, he just used it. And we're like, okay. And then, you know, we went to Hawaii and we recorded Infiltrate mostly in Hawaii. Me and Chad went there and we lived in a hotel in uh, Honolulu. I forget what hotel it was. We were there for like 35 days or something like that. I think Jess came out for a couple of days to do some drums, but I did drums on Plastic Plan. Oh. And then I think before we left for Hawaii, like Jess did a lot of his drum tracks, but then he did come out to Hawaii to finish the drum tracks for the songs that he, he hadn't done yet, like Attached to Hip and stuff like that. But we worked in so many different studios. So. Yeah. I think that after we had worked in like two or three studios, like uh, Studio Four in Conshohocken, obviously the Groundhog, we did some stuff. And then like once we had most of the drum tracks down, that's when we went to Hawaii. But anything that we didn't have done drum-wise, I think Jess came out for a couple of days and then he left. And he always wanted to go home. Yeah. He didn't want to leave Westchester. So I ended up doing drums on Plastic Plan and we just looped it. That's crazy. I had no idea. And then Frenetic, you know, all those songs ended up getting done. And then uh, the record came out September 24th, I think, 20th anniversary coming up. Yeah, yeah. Dude, like yeah. that That year, Island Def Jam had a very interesting 
rock roster because it was back-to-back releases, all these bands that sounded totally different, but they had different ways of kind of incorporating rock and punk and metal. Like you have CKY, you have Thrice, you have Some 41, all kind of drop in a row. And yet they all are totally original, but kind of picking little bits of metal and different styles and, and mixing them into their own shit. And I was just on board for all of it. It's interesting to look at that now from that point of view, but at the time we didn't see it like that at all. We saw it as we were Island's guinea pigs because some 41 we just saw as like a pop punk Green Day. Which they started that way, and then that record that they made in 2002 was when they started really incorporating you know they would do they would do jokey gimmicky like iron maiden parody stuff but with that yeah. record they started actually incorporating it into their songwriting and more progressive arrangements and shit and so i was hearing that in in almost parallel to what you guys were doing in a way well we had nothing in common except that we were label mates but i remember playing with some 41 before they had a record contract and just so happened that island was there and they had some woman as their manager who talked the label into signing them. And, of course, they did. And, and Sum 41 was like a power punk Green Day kind of band, I guess, with a sense of humor. You know, they had yeah. metal influences, but they didn't show their metal influences without making fun of them. Like, their metal influences had to be a parody of what they enjoyed about those bands. Because yeah. back then, it wasn't cool to like metal. So if you liked Iron Maiden or Metallica, you couldn't tell anybody without making it a joke yeah which that's all i remember about some 41 is that i was so angry that they did like iron maiden they did like metallica and even though you know their power punk rock thing was the joke and they were making fun of something that was way better and more serious than what they were doing but it felt like only i knew that so we played with them. We never toured with them, but we played with them. I didn't know anything about them. I didn't like their music. I didn't care. And there was other bands on the label, too. Like We felt like, where do we fit in? Like My guitar riffs are influenced by Death. Yeah. The band Death. You know, and and and, and Jess always like said, can we put like a little clutch in there? And I was like, we can put yes. clutch in. Yes. It's got to be more not so hippy-dippy. Like, I'll do the clutch thing, but it's got to be more fine-tuned. It's got to be more produced. Yeah. It's not, a lot of bands back then, like, they got a lot of credibility for not sounding great. Yeah. You know, we did this record in our garage, and that was, like, the cool thing. I can't tell you how many bands got a lot of money to make records that sounded like they were made in their garage, <laughs> which yeah. I did not like, and I did not like the clutch records. I didn't like... At that time, like uh, maybe years before the self-titled Clutch record came out, and I was like, God, these songs sound like riffs that I wrote when I was 16 and I didn't like. And then you listen to the production, it's like, sounds like they spent like $10 recording this. So, But that was Jess's favorite band. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to do the simple 4-4 rock thing. He wanted to have, you know, all these like weird lyrics that talked about shit that nobody could figure out, but they thought it was smart because they didn't get it you know it's like anything that you don't get that you listen to that isn't simple you just automatically consider it's out of your league and you're not <laughs> smart enough to understand it so you might as well just call it brilliant that was the shit i i refused 
to deal with. Like when I heard that stuff, I knew it sucked. So in my opinion, I just said it sucked. But that was his favorite band, so we you know we tried to put in a little bit of that, but we put in keyboards and disco stuff because I was a fan of. My mom always played the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack around yeah. the house, even though disco was considered really lame. I saw a dark part of it because ABBA was a disco kind of band. But if you, most of their songs are, are about really dark shit. If you listen to like knowing me and knowing you and stuff like that, it's like about like an empty house that the wife was abused. The kids were abused. Like ABBA had some fucking really, I'm not talking about dancing queen and shit like that. I'm talking about the songs that not many people know where there was a lot of dark stuff. And then if you watch the movie prom night, which I watched on my little black and white TV in like 1982 or something, it was on NBC and I watched that. It was all disco. So, and prom night has a huge influence on what CKY became. All you got to do is watch that horror movie because while the killer is killing, you hear the disco in the background and he's going now, and I put that in the song, The Human Drive in High Five. While the, we're doing that disco song, of course, more with like a metal heavy edge. Yeah. We end them going, now, now, now. Because it was the sound the killer would make when he was killing the kids that uh, fucking killed his sister in that movie. That's rad, man. And you're still using samples to this day, even on campaign. I love that, man. And yeah. <laughs> you, you, you touched on something, though, about production that's something really important to me. Like when I talk about your guitar tone, I, I, I mean it because there are a lot of bands that I first heard that somebody's like, oh, you got to get into the Misfits or whatever. Like I've, I've told these kind of stories before on here, but like I'll hear it and I'm like, this sounds like shit. I don't know how you listen to this, right? And then I put on something that I thought was a really well-produced record. And that's why I went to go and produce records later because that's something that just my ear gravitates toward. And yeah. I thought the best-sounding CKY record was An Answer Can Be Found. Um, oh. I, I thought, man, <laughs> you guys went all in on that. It sounded phenomenal to me. That album was a disaster in so many <laughs> different ways. And it's interesting that you hear that as like the best produced because that is not the popular opinion on that album. That album was almost the end of the band. Really? It was the end of the band at, at one point because it's such a long story. Well, and we need to get okay. to the new stuff, so I don't want to spend too much time okay. on that. But Let me just say this about Answer Can Be Found. We worked really hard on it. We went in working on it with the basis that we're not going to do keyboards. We're going to bring back guitar solos. Yeah. And this is going to be our straight ahead raw rock album. Well, it got erased. Oh, we recorded the album on pro tools. The equipment melted. The disc was erased. My God. We had to hire the FBI to bring back our lost recordings. So that album is pieced together like a puzzle of takes that we rejected. Wow. So it's, it's not a real album to me. That's what? why I'm recording. I'm re-recording all the CKY albums, but the answer can be found That's stuff rad. that 96 Bitter Beings and I have re-recorded. The answer stuff sounds so much better because answer can be found was just an erased record. It got erased. The hard drive melted. We had to redo shit. We had to go all the way to Sony Studios in New York. We had to fly out there, try to piece together the album. It was like a puzzle. 
that parts of sounds parts horrible of, as the tables turn we're in the dress of the k file it was like a nightmare wow so it's a hard one to listen to but now that i'm re-recording the songs the way they were supposed to be yeah going to be a better record but that's interesting some people feel that way and i don't necessarily mean like production as a whole in terms of you can be looking at your own performance like oh that wasn't the take i would have used or or things like that whereas i guess i mean from like an engineering perspective sonically uh it, it really impressed me but let's fast forward a little bit i remember hearing some gossipy bullshit uh, about cky and being kind of bummed like oh that's too bad and then hearing this announcement that Darren Miller has a new band. And what's the name of that band? 96 Bitter Beings. I'm like, that's fucking genius. Like, it's unforgettable. It's something people are already, like, in the internet age, if they're searching for your music, that's something they're typing in already, right? I, I was so happy. I found out right after the Kickstarter had ended for mm. a campaign. So I didn't get yep. the first immediate release but then you guys did like oh we have some extras and i was able to score a copy i was so happy with it was there any trepidation on your end in terms of like okay we're starting over from scratch i hope this works or did you just know like man i think the fans are going to rally around this shit it was a long process i mean i i stopped working with them in like i think 2013 I never quit, and I was never. Of course, I was never fired. I mean, I was. We were. Chad, Jess, and I are presidents of CKY Incorporated. Okay. I'm thirty three percent point three three percent. The rest of the guys are thirty three point three. They just started doing stuff without me. Yeah. And I thought that was really weird. And and Jess had kind of fallen in love with like a bromance with Daniel Davies, who is John Carpenter's godson. Okay. Ended up. I think he's doing scoring now for all the Halloween movies, which is really strange. But Daniel Davies was in a band that just like called Years of a Disaster or something like that. We weren't getting along, and I think that just because Jess thought he was a talented guy, this Dan Daniel guy, like I don't think Jess being a drummer realized that, oh, what, I like Daniel Davies. I like his music for Years of Disaster, so I'm just going to put him in the band, and he'll be able to take Darren's spot. But <laughs> You don't understand that guitar players are very different. Yeah. It's my style. So you can't just make somebody like put my shoes on and there you go. So, you know, it was a kind of embarrassing. Uh, I was like, wow, I'm getting replaced by, you know, your bromance with this guy that's John Carpenter. It was like all about like name dropping. Mm. Uh, we're getting this guy from this band that I love who happens to be John Carpenter's stepson. And I learned a lot about Daniel Davies because he works. He does music for my my favorite movies, Halloween, Halloween Kills, and all that stuff. Yeah. So that's, that's what really was like, wow, like that's weird. The guy that replaced me in CKY for a minute now does the scores for those movies, but it didn't work out. It was kind of annoying and embarrassing. And then in 2014, after that Daniel Davies obsession wore off with Jess, Chad got in touch with me, and then it was Jess's out oh. the band. And then Chad came out to me, and we took some pictures, and it was like, okay, now it's me and Chad continuing CKY. Oh. Which I thought was weird. You know, there's a bunch of photographs that I have, and then, like, at first it was like, we're not letting Jess in. It was, I just wanted things to move along, but it was all about we're not letting Jess in. And then one day I came in, and I was like, all right, you're ready to work? And then Chad was like, you know, 
maybe this isn't right. Maybe we should include Jess. And I was like, I'm okay. He was like, you should probably call Jess and like, you know, water on the bridge, like talk to him. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. I would like to do that, but I think that there's some stuff we have to clear up. Like at that time, I thought that I was owed some apologies Mm -hmm. for things, but then I was expected to apologize. And I found that really suspicious that all of a sudden, like it was part of the reunion in 2014 to not include Jess, which was not my idea. But then it, it like did a 180 and was like, let's include Jess and you call and apologize to him. And I was like, but I don't have anything really to apologize for. And if I did, I'm sure I did it when I did it. I was Mr. Apologize. If I said something or did something horrible to somebody on the tour bus or whatever, I'd say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. But eventually I would do so much that sorry wasn't good enough. So, you know, I would get cast out. But then like it, it was pretty much call Jess and apologize. And I was like, whoa, 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 uh, there's something's not right here. I have apologized. And the reason that things didn't work out for so long is because I need somebody to say sorry to me. Yeah. Which wasn't a big deal. But just to be told, like, if somebody does something horrible to you, let's just say, like, somebody dumps a bucket of soup on your head, you know, and then you don't talk to them for a while. And then you're just like, you know, whatever. And then they tell you to apologize to them. It just doesn't make sense. It's like all in principle. So I said, okay, I see where this is going. This was like kind of a scam to set me up to work with you. And then I'm supposed to call Jess. It was all planned. It was all planned that Darren was going to make the phone call and be the fool and apologize like he always does. And I refused. I I put my foot down. I'm like, I'm not going to apologize for something that I should be getting an apology for. I'm not a brat like that, but it's just common sense. You know, somebody does something to you. You don't apologize to them for what they did. They shouldn't apologize to you. I've never gotten an apology out of either one of those guys, Chad or Jess, in 15 fucking years. Man. Going on 20. But I apologize for everything. Roadrunner Records made me apologize to something that I said to Chad just so we could finish Carver City. please apologize to him he won't work unless you apologize and i'm like yeah but i didn't do anything wrong and they're like just be the bigger man and make him happy just say you're sorry we all know that you don't mean it just do it and i got so sick of that and that's like one of the reasons why i bailed in 2013 or whatever had a really bad last show christmas show still online if you want to watch it i blacked out Probably fell off the stage. I lost my uh, Jackson guitar endorsement. Wow. Yeah, it's been a long time enough that I can laugh about it. It's pretty legendary. It still sits somewhere in my life as a a scar. But um, I don't regret any of it because where I am now is completely different. Maddie Janitis, who was there from the very beginning, 15-year-old kid, hanging around the studio during volume one. He, He was around everywhere. He used to... When we were on the East Coast in Philly, you know, working at the Groundhog, at the shows, you know, Nick's Roast Beef and, um, you know, all those small clubs, Pontiac Grill, Doc Watson's, you know, these really small clubs that we had to beg to get shows at. Matty J was all, always there. He was, you know, Chad was kind of his mentor. Matty learned a lot through Chad and by watching CKY, you know, record our albums. And he did backing vocals and you know played some 
maracas and tambourine every once in a while. And yeah. That. Didn't have much to do with Answer Can Be Found, but he had his own band called Inbred. And we would let them open for us on certain tours as long as they agreed to be our roadies. You know, we'd let them come on. You know, you guys can play in front of our audience if you set up our stage. Yeah. You know, but they were younger kids. Murray, his name's Rob Valina, but we called him Murray. I don't know why. But he played drums in Maddie's band. And whenever Jess wouldn't show up or whenever Jess couldn't do a song like Imaginary Threats, like the beginning of Imaginary Threats, Jess could not play. So Murray played it. Oh. Jess and I demoed some Carver City songs, and then we had a falling out, just like always. And then I went to Chad's, and like we made up and said, you know, bygones, bygones. And we started to record the Carver City songs that Jess and I had demoed. But Jess would come out with a six-pack of beer with maybe one beer left. Yeah. And we tried to get him to play these drums on songs that we had written. And, and maybe we did do click tracks on answer can be found and i know we did on plastic plan for idr but just couldn't play to click tracks so after like a six pack of beer asking him to play to a click track yeah. on songs that he didn't remember how to play or couldn't <laughs> play anyway so he would leave and then maddie or murray would come in and they would they would play the drums on the songs so there's a lot of stuff for on uh, carver city and we there was another record of carver city songs that came out on a B-Sides compilation called B-Sides and Rarities. And yeah. some of those were supposed to be on Carver City. But I'm not saying he didn't play good drums on that record. He did when he was in the mood, but he didn't like to drive all the way from Westchester over to New Hope. It was a long yeah. ride, and he had to make that trip alone. But the connective yeah. tissue here, it sounds like that Maddie, who's playing with you guys now, has yes. been part of the fam for a long time. Everything. The only thing that I don't remember Maddie being around for that much was, was an answer can be found. Yeah. Because that was all L.A. But IDR and Volume 1 and Carver City were very much East Coast records. He worked on a farm taking care of horses somewhere around New Hope. Him and his girlfriend would, you know, work and, like, take care of the horses and all that stuff. And then they would come to the studio and I'd, I'd be like, Maddie, you smell like horse shit, you know. Chad had a really awesome studio set up. Two-inch tape was gone. We were just using Pro Tools, but it was a really cool studio that Chad had set up. It was He called it Studio Sig, but it wasn't. It was separate from his house, and his house was really cool. I thought it was amazing. I mean, my parents were looking at, at buying it. I knew it was pretty cool, but he turned, like, it wasn't a garage. I think it was more like a guest house. He turned it into a studio and it it was amazing it had like a, a lounge he had like a big movie screen set up in the vocal booth downstairs yeah and he would be like what movie do you want to watch like what movie would get you like in the mood to like That's really cool. do, do good vocals and i'd be like let's play friday the 13th part three while i'm doing uh, imaginary threat vocals you know or i'm doing woe is me vocals you know and he would get the he had the um the movie screen and he was playing all these movies while I was getting into the vibe. And that's why that album has a very cool East coast horror vibe. That is cool. It was just me and him. It was me and Chad and then Murray and Maddie J. Maddie J sang backups on rats and the infirmary, a lot of backing vocals on all the songs. He did a lot of percussion. He was there to give opinions and stuff. He was there to hang out, you know, whenever things didn't work out with jazz or whatever, like 
we worked with him until I left and I didn't hear from Maddie for a long time. And people were telling me what he was up to. You know, he was working with BAM and various bands. And he played on a, a song on Campaign as well with uh, 96 Bitter Beings. Yes, Bugs and Snakes. He wrote that song. Oh, really? CKY demoed it for the album that they did without me. Uh huh. They didn't put it on their record, so I'll do it for my campaign record for 96 Printer Beings. That's rad. And I switched it up a little bit. I came up with a little bit more riffs. And me and Maddie, you know, wrote that song together. Maddie plays bass. Murray plays drums on it. And I did guitar and vocals. And Ken did solos for it. Nice, man. And if anybody hasn't heard this record, I, I just want to talk about it because I was blown away. You know, it, it's it's something special when you've been following an artist for a long time and, you know, they are able to reinvent themselves and still kind of execute at that level that you would you hope. You can tell who it is. Yeah, exactly. Say, I, know the, I know who that you know? is. And like, it reminds me in a way of Jello Biafra because he started... Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine, right? Uh -huh. And this is so many years after feuds and legal disputes with the dead Kennedys, and they're still playing the same old set list from yeah. the 1980s to this day, versus he cranked out album after album of fresh new material that sounds like the classic shit, but like it's contemporary and it, the production is better and like you know I, I i just see that that parallel in your stuff i mean it opens up with the signature sound i mean still unstable still at large the whipping hand in the beginning it hurt it hurt a lot i didn't want to admit it but i wanted to continue with those guys and i remember the last time i talked to jess on the phone was i had threatened we had an australia tour planned right after the christmas show where i totally fucked up i fucked up everything it was embarrassing it was humiliating when i watched it but then after a while you know i had rested and we had an australian tour planned and i remember i had said you know i don't think i want to play with you guys anymore but you know what we do have the australian tour booked and you know i'll do that tour yeah and i just remember just saying you know what we already have somebody that replaced you. And he talked Daniel Davies into taking my place, even though neither one of them had knew how much work that was going to be. But yeah, it was hurtful. So after Australia happened, I just never got a phone call. And then that was it. They never did anything really after the festival and that. And then eventually there was so much time that went by. And then the 2014 thing with me and Chad happened. But I never quit. And I never, of course, got, I never got fired. Who was going to fucking fire me? I mean, when you get this idea that, okay, I don't think that's ever going to happen again. I better start my own shit. Did you feel like you... Well, I did a solo album. Okay. In the meantime, I did an acoustic record, you know, as I waited. And I did a death metal record that was a side project. We were all supposed to do side projects at one point because we needed time away from each other. Yeah. I ended up doing a death metal record. I had a band called World Under Blood, and I signed a deal with Nuclear Blast Records, and I did an album called Tactical. It was a really cool death metal record, and just did um, the company band. And when Chad tried to do a side project that he really wanted to go back to, it was a band that he um, 
had in the 90s called Rudy and Blitz. Mm-hmm. He was the most excited about us taking a break and doing side projects because he really wanted to go back and do another album with Rudy and Blitz. Well, when he reunited with the guys from Rudy and Blitz, he did something that immediately pissed them off. And they said, fuck you, Chad. Oh, no. <laughs> so his side project was over almost immediately. Got it. Meanwhile, Jess and I were still working on ours. So there was a lot of like animosity in that situation. And um, Jess and I got our side projects out. And it's just like one of the things, like Chad didn't get to do his, even though he fought for it in the beginning. And then we did a video like, what's next with CKY? And then Chad tried to say, oh, I don't want to do side projects. I want to do another CKY record. Of course, this was after his side project. Yeah. Said, Fuck you. I guess what I was getting at is like when you start this, because this first record is so strong, I wonder, were you coming at it like, okay, I've got something to prove here? Or was it just something you were really inspired and I appreciate you bringing me back to the origin of the question. Yeah. I had an ego where I was like, everybody's going to see that I was this band. Yeah. And at at first I wanted to call it Mecca CKY, Mm -hmm. which was stupid. This is something I I decided I wanted to do in like 2015 or 16 because my son was into Godzilla movies and we really liked to watch Mecha Godzilla. Yeah. So I was like, Mecha CKY. I was still really hurting. I was trying to take a break. I was trying to relax. I did my acoustic record. You know, it was all about, I'm going to be CKY. Oh, no, we're going to be CKY. Oh, no, we're going to. So we went back and forth. And then finally, like after I got over it a little bit and they did their record, like everybody knew that it, it wasn't CKY. So yes, people were telling me you are CKY and the only way that we're ever going to hear new CKY music is if you do new CKY music. But the problem was, is that I couldn't use the CKY name. Yeah. I mean, I could, but not without them like interrupting it with like cease and desist. Like you yeah. can send anybody a cease and desist. It's a whole thing like flag, yeah. black flag, all that, you know. Yeah, even if it's not legal, like I could send you a cease and desist right now. Like yeah. you are yeah. hereby ordered not to continue this interview. Like anybody can send a cease and desist. You got to pay your lawyer, lawyer a couple hundred bucks. If I really wanted to pursue it, I could have gone on with CKY, but then it would have been like, well, I don't have the band either. Yeah, Those guys didn't have who they needed, and I didn't have who I needed. So let them have it. And start fresh. Yeah, the whole thing was like, if they have it and they continue to work with it, they're going to kill it. Because it's not, I'm the songwriter. Yeah, it's not the same. I write all the songs. So they can't just kick out the songwriter and then expect to move on to the next thing. And this is the new CKY record. People are like, this doesn't. Where where's the guitar player singer? Like where's yeah. that voice? Where's the singer? Where's that voice? Where are those lyrics? Where are those guitar riffs? It didn't work. And in that time where they tried to hurt me, I was offended, but I had everybody saying what they're doing is ridiculous. And then another year or two, I have a family, I'm raising my kids. Finally I'm over it. I'm like, I don't care what they do, you know, it's my band. CKY is my band. I'm thirty three percent of it. You know, when it comes time to uh get in there with an auditor and bring a lawyer in and, you know, where's my 33% of the last 10 years? You know, yeah. that very well could happen, but at least I was over the traumatic part of it that they would go and do an album just to hurt me. Like we'll show you. Yeah. And at that point you said, you've got all these other people going, well, you're the real CKY and you're yeah. going, well, fuck so it. it then really, let's do it. 
it was encouraging to hear that a lot of people were saying that and a lot of record companies were saying that too and a lot of press people and a lot of a lot of different people were coming to me and being like what are they doing and i was like whatever you know they feel like they have to do to get back at me you know yeah and then some people would be like well maybe they're just trying to move along and go forward i was like that could be possible but there was so much animosity like i i remember hearing the single that came out and i was like oh my god these lyrics are about me oh shit and i I, fuck was this i listened to half of it once so i couldn't tell you actually shoplifted the album for me at at, at best (laughs) buy as a joke like why would you buy this album and give it to me didn't buy it they stole it i was like okay that's cool but a lot of people were saying oh my god all the songs are about you and i'm like be sure like cky songs were never about hating people or criticizing people it was all about fiction and horror and fun and i was like obviously not trying to continue the legacy of the band if all their songs are about trying to piss on me and make me mad or, you know, so it was like, it was a joke. It became a joke and it didn't go anywhere. So that's when I decided I didn't want anything to do with it. But, you know, biggest song that I ever wrote, never hit 96 quite better beings, never charted on any radio as far as, but we all uh, know it never was a single. Yeah. It wasn't released as a single because we own the album or I own the album actually. But the song over the years has garnered so much airplay as far as streaming. I don't know about radio, but the biggest hit that we ever had is from Answer Can Be Found, Familiar Realm. Really? Number 24 on rock radio. It's charted at number 24. And Flesh into Gear from Infiltrate charted at like number 28 or something like that. But nice. neither of those songs were anywhere near as big as 96 Quaypitter Beings. Yeah, man. It's, it's that earworm fucking riff, you know. Yeah, and it's just funny because on paper things look so much more successful than they really are. Familiar Realm is not. I like the song, but it is not a hit. It's not a necessity as far as CKY material, my my material is concerned. But on paper, yeah, if you were to look up, what was the biggest CKY hit? It would say Familiar Realm lasted ten weeks on the charts. It would even say that Answer Can Be Found was the most successful record, charted at number twenty-seven. Wow. Didn't sell as much as the albums that didn't chart. Yeah. So it's funny. But um, I chose 96 Quite Bitter Beings to be the name of the new band. I cut out the quite. Yep. Because I didn't want people to say 96 Quiet Bitter Beings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe they could just get beings wrong. Very inspired name, though, man. Like I said, it's clever. It's so on brand. It's not using anything CKY, and yet it's yeah. identifiable as CKY. It's a nod to my past. Yes. Which I'm proud of. And I still own that vibe. I still own that, you know, way of working. It's my style. Yeah. I'm still on that path, you know, but I didn't want, um, I wanted people to be able to find where I was at now by keeping that name. Yeah. And at the same time, I wanted to, I did want to carry on about with what CKY would do next after Carver City. Does the new band play the old songs? Oh, yeah. Okay, you do. You can go on YouTube. Anybody, you know, our tour in 2020 was January, February. Mm -hmm. I think we did 21 shows, and a lot of them are up. And we played 18, 19 songs per night. Nice. And, you know, did like three or four from the campaign album. And then the rest were all the classics. 
Okay. You know, okay. There were nights. There were nights when we would do ninety six quite bitter beings, and then Escape from Hellview, and then Hellions on Parade, which is the trilogy. Yeah. We do all in a row, and that's what we're going to do on this next tour. That's we're great. Going through the U.S. Uh, July nineteenth to August twentieth, twenty first. It's the same thing. We have um, the classics. We're doing uh, a song or two from the Synergy Restored album, which is coming out in November. Dude, I was going to ask you about that because it, when you came back, it was like. We've got two albums, and then everyone's like, "Okay, where is it? Where's the second one?" <laughs> yeah. So that's awesome. It's uh, was it something that you guys had changed and morphed into something else, or is it more or less the same thing that when you conceived it? Well, all right, 2018. You know, we did fundraise. We had no record deal. Yeah. We wanted to make a record that was only going to be released to the people that funded it. Yeah, And then we were going to make a second record that we hoped to license to a record company. So after we did the campaign record, the reason why we called it campaign is because it was essentially made for everybody that contributed to our campaign. Yeah, There was a, a lot of naivety on my part that I thought, okay, if we print up CDs and vinyl for this album that's only supposed to be for the people that took part in the fundraiser... We'll send it to them, and then they'll be the only ones to have it. Well, yeah. that was dumb because it got leaked right after it oh, was shipped out. So right. that ended up being you know, the debut album. It was supposed to be a record only for the people that helped us fund it. Then it was available to everybody. It was up from streaming you know, and all that stuff. And then it did really well, streaming and then the sales of it. Uh, once it got leaked, we said, hey, you know, we can't just have people, you know, putting it up and streaming it, you know, without us being in control of it. So I said, you know, we'll do the vinyl and CDs and everything. We already had that plan for the people that, uh, we already had the CDs, but the vinyl came afterwards because it had leaked. And Synergy Restored was recorded around the same time as Campaign. Okay. Because the fans had helped us fund both records. So we did like 35 songs, something like that. And you were doing some, like, campaign perks of, like, they could get you to cover a song and shit like yeah. that too right we did that we did um because you got the mj song on the record which is somehow fucking the most perfect i don't even know like how i never heard that influence before but like it's such a perfect darren riff the reason the songs for campaign were chosen for that album is because i wanted i wanted a sampler of everything that we're ever going to be able to do yeah but better Okay, the first song is the kick-ass song, you yeah. know, the riff song. It's the Rio Bravo. The yeah. second song is co-written. It's the first song that I've ever done where I just did the lyrics and our guitar player, Ken, wrote the music. Yeah, okay? I read that in the credits and it surprised me because it sounds yeah. just like you. It's his music. He knew, you know, he had done enough uh, practicing and research. He knew what the hell I was doing. And then yeah. Cavalcade of Perversion is an instrumental. With, you know, and yeah, it has with all the samples. Samples from my favorite movies. And then there's uh, Where Were You and on and on and on. And like each that, song man. shows the, the ballad, December Higher Power. There's all different examples of things that I've done in the past. Yeah, yeah. So that left the uh, Synergy songs left. And we... A lot of the Synergy recordings were covers that we gave as perks. So we did a bunch. I did a Lionel Richie song, uh, All Night Long. Yeah. I mean, 
I, the only thing that we still, I, we still owe somebody a Rush song. Oh, there's a Rush song, and we finished it. But there was one more thing I have to do, and I know that person's still waiting for it. And it's been fucking almost five years, and we haven't handed it in yet. But we did do every other song. People wanted acoustic renditions of songs. People yeah. wanted to re us to re-record songs. People wanted us to re-record their songs. Like people, as a perk to help us fundraise our album, people said, here's my song. Can you record it for me and make it sound good? That's cool. So we, we did a bunch of songs like that fans gave us, that they wrote. So you practically did three albums at once. Yeah, I mean, we recorded 35 songs. Yeah. But the, the 11 that were left for Synergy during the worst of COVID that's when I signed with Nuclear Blast. Okay. All the record pressing plants had shut down. Yeah. Everybody was getting sick. I got COVID twice. Damn. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the people weren't allowed in the office. So the deal moved very slowly. Meanwhile, I was going back into the studio and I was fixing little tiny things, like seconds yeah. of things. There was one part in the song Vaudeville's Revenge. One of the lines is, unsensitive to what used to be invited. And I was like, unsensitive isn't a word. <laughs> yeah. And for months, for months, I was like, is unsensitive a word? So like the, at the, the 11th hour before we handed the record and I had to change it to insensitive. Yeah. So there was like little things on this album that bothered me and I kept, but I didn't overdo it. I, at one point I realized I have to let it go. But I went in and I was adding vocals and I was adding little guitar parts and we were remixing. And finally, we were just like, okay, this is it. We're done. Not touching it. And we handed it into the label and we waited and we waited and waited. And, uh, you know, the label was six months behind albums that were supposed to be released. Then they had to wait six months. And then finally, everything got caught up and... Now we have a release date. Now we have our single scheduled, the first one coming up before we leave for the tour. Awesome. So we're going to have our video and single for Vaudeville out July 15th. And then we have another single, August. And then uh, our third single is coming out in September. And then the album's coming out, I think, November. And then my favorite part, the vinyl, is going to be out in uh, mid-2023. Which is like, whoa, why? Well, because vinyl takes nine months to a year. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, to schedule. It's way insane. But campaign, I, we're off to a great start. I love our first record because every song has its own place. And there's the joke in the beginning. Where yeah. <laughs> it sounds like. You're I like, would, oh, no. <laughs> a lot of people are like, oh, my God. Like, is this what they sound like now? And then we blast them with the real songs that was a joke because i sense of humor you know i still have my philadelphia sense of humor and even on the new record I, there's a sense of humor like weird al and sparks and all these bands that have these uh really cheeky lyrics and uh, creative and sometimes like well, what are they talking about so there's all different kinds of stuff on our first two records but synergy is the one it, i think it beats carver city which is my favorite cky record um, I just think it's the best of all the bands that I've ever done. That's awesome. Synergy Restored is the record that I would bet my entire career on that record being the one to take us into the next 10, 20 years.
years. I already couldn't wait to hear it, but man, hearing that is even more exciting. When you were doing the live stream the other day and you were talking about, you know, trying to get back out there and do this tour, and I, I really, really felt your your frustration. You know, I've had more lineup changes than I care to mention in my life. Yeah. And and when you're talking about, like, I don't know if we're going to have to cancel the tour, and I don't know what's going to happen, and the fact that you guys pulled this off, it's fantastic. It's very impressive. And there's a way for fans to kind of, one, help you guys fund it, but get something extra out of this experience when they catch you on tour. And so can you talk a little bit about what you are offering fans to get in on? Well, when our drummer, Tim, who's been with us for eight years, and he's an amazing drummer, I can't even tell you, like, the way Tim Luera and his brother, Sean, Sean was the bass player. I started playing with Sean in his garage, but his little brother, Tim, came in, you know, and just eight years ago. He's like, can I play? And, you know, I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, I know this song. And he wasn't that good at drums, you know. Yeah. But the more that me and Sean played at the house, like all of a sudden, like Tim started playing and like it was obvious that he was unhappy with how much we thought he was unimpressive. Like he was trying to prove something. Yeah. So all of a sudden he became this amazing drummer in a very small amount of time. And after we were rehearsing with Tim and he made and he played all the songs perfectly at one point, it got to the point where there was no reason to look for another drummer. It's like, your brother's in. Like, Tim is in the band. That's awesome. Can't ask for any better. And we started doing shows, and he did great. And then we went on tour in 2022. Amazing. Amazing stage performer. Really enthusiastic. Loves talking to the fans. Really funny guy. Never misses a beat. Never makes a mistake. He's just dead on. Okay? Right after we planned this summer tour, about five months ago, he started coming down with something really bad. And um, he would be in the hospital. And we're like, where, where's Tim? He's like, not even Sean really knew. I'm like, where is he? And I text him. I'm like, where, where are you at? He's like, oh, I've been in the hospital for the last four days. Like, what? Wow. Why didn't you tell us? Like, tell us this stuff. Like, you know? He was like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. It's okay. And then, like, he would come back and we rehearse. And then he would disappear again. Like, Where's Tim? Is he back in the hospital? I text him, like, are you back in the hospital? He's like, yeah. Man. And I was like, all right, what's going on, you know? And this was before the tour was booked. And then finally the tour got booked, and we just assumed, because Tim had been taken care of in the hospital, we just assumed that he'd be fine and, and ready to go on tour. And then, you know, as the months crept up on us, it was about May, where Tim said, I'm not going to be able to do this tour. And I said, you got to be kidding me. He's like, no, they're saying I need surgery. My doctor says I need to get surgery. I have to get this taken care of right away. And I was like, oh, my God, we got to find a tremor. So I started looking out. Everybody started looking. No one was available. Everybody's on tour this summer. There's so much competition. Every single fucking band now that, yep. and now that the pandemic is over, everybody's out there. You know, that's scary for one thing because, you know, should I go see 96 Bitter Beings or should I see, you know, Fugazi or yeah. whoever? And then there was a point where Tim said, you know what? I'm feeling better. You know what? I'm going for it. I'm going for it. I'm doing it. And I was like, God, I love that attitude. That's the best attitude you can have. Like, fuck it. I'm doing it. Yeah. You know? And like for a week, it was like, cool. Tim's back on board. And I think we rehearsed and it was fine. 
for a few days we were back to being like, yeah, you know, we were all positive about it. And then Tim said, I, I can't do it. My doctor says, I can't do it. He says, if I don't get surgery soon, this is going to be bad. Yeah. So I was so disappointed because I loved the fuck it attitude. I'm going to do it. But at the same time, I realized that it doesn't always work out that way. And, I, you know, and we also had to realize that if he did say, I'm doing it anyway, we could be anywhere in the country. And then all of a sudden he would get sick yeah. and told me over. So we did have to find a replacement. And then just from looking, I checked out so many different people. I went into Hollywood. I talked to people. We had some guy come in and rehearse with us. Nothing was working out. And then finally, Maddie J and I were talking. And he's like, well, I can do it. And I was like, I forgot you played drums. Obviously, you played on CQI <laughs> yeah. songs. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, you do it. And, you know, it's like a half a CKY reunion. Like we'll be touring together again. That's right. You want drums and, and Maddie can play every instrument. So it was, it was great. So I bought Maddie's ticket out here. He's coming out here. We're going to rehearse and it's going to be cool to see him again. Cause he's been living in Finland and I haven't seen him in years. We've been talking like every day on the phone, but you know, it's being together and in person. Yeah. We used to have so much fun on tour. I used to be a pain in the ass, and I'd put him through a lot of bullshit, but he was always like a mediator between me and anybody else. Sometimes he was a mediator between me and him. And <laughs> I'd get so fucked up, you know, with drinking and stuff that, you know, I would go off and start talking to myself, and I'd get angry. And, you know, I, I, I really, I was a, a big fucking asshole, a big fucking cocksucking asshole a lot of the times. And I, I did a bunch of fucked up shit to people that didn't deserve it. Maddie was never a victim of that, but he was able to be like, Hey, Hey, calm down, you know, chill out, you know, and it's hard to talk an angry drunk person down, you know? Yeah. He's really good at that. He's just the good guy. He's because he is a good guy and he's talented. I never met anybody like him. He, he, he knows music so well, but doesn't have a favorite band. Yeah. Like, he doesn't have a favorite genre of band. Like what kind of music do you like, Maddie? Oh, I just like music. Well, who's your favorite band? He says Nirvana and stuff, but his favorite music is whatever he's playing. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's so invaluable just to have a person when you're out on the tour and all the things that come with that. To me, it's invaluable to be out there with at least one person who you've known for decades, who yeah. you guys just get each other, you ground each other, and no matter what you run into, like, okay, at least I have somebody here that's my connection to home in a way, you know, and, uh, like, and that having that friendship with you on the road is, is just so crucial. It's crucial to have somebody that's with us. That's from the East coast. It's going to be, you know, there and that's going to be comfortable. And then I have my new brothers. They're, they're, we're best friends. Three other guys with me and Maddie. It's going to be five people traveling together and just doing what we do and trying to do the best we can. And then the album comes out. I mean, we're, we're going one rung up the ladder at a time. First album we did by ourselves. Yep. Successful. Next album, we signed our record deal because our first record is so good. And when they heard the second one, they had to sign us. Third one, I've already started working on. I'm four songs in. Awesome. And the most exciting part, you know, most people will say like, oh, you know, we started our band and then when we finally sold a million records, that's when it all started. I actually enjoy the challenge of the process of getting up there. 
And I, I can hear that with the new yeah. shit. It's it's like it's really inspired stuff. You know. Yeah, I, it was. It's exciting to be an overnight success. Is never good news because just as quickly as you went up the ladder, just is just as quickly you can come down. Yeah, you have to keep topping it, or yeah. your yesterday's news. Right. So with CKY, you know, we climbed the ladder. It took a lot of work and it took a lot of challenge to get where we got. But I enjoyed that more than I did having gotten to there and then like riding that out, you know? Yeah. So the challenge for me is that now I'm kind of, I feel like I'm getting a second chance at this. What I enjoy is doing the low budget tours, you know, roughing it. It's like for yeah. camp. It's like, I get this uh, chance to not be so spoiled with tour buses and stuff. Like I want to go back out and appreciate it as much as I should have yeah. when it happened first. And now that I'm, I'm older and I'm more, I'm paying more attention to what goes into this and it's a different time and how rock music isn't as people don't instantly recognize it as much as they used to. The fun of it is, can we, keep going in this band from going you know i'll do the the vans and the most shitty motels and let's just keep seeing if we can get higher and higher and higher and higher yeah. until we're the biggest band in the world and that's how i think and i'm willing to get as far as i can to being the biggest band in the world until somebody says either you are or sorry that's not going to happen. Just stay where you are. <laughs> yeah. And that's the exciting part for me. I want to see how far I can take this. Well, it's exciting, man. And and like I said, it sounds like you're really hungry and I know the fans are ready. We've been waiting a long time for, you know, this next record and to see you live. But again, one of the reasons I want to have you come on now is because of the interactive portion here. Like you do have some things that you're offering to fans right now. Mm -hmm that yeah. are, are usually not possible. So tell people what you've got going on. Instead of going on like Indiegogo or Kickstarter or anything like that, I decided to like, okay, we need help. Gas is ridiculous. Um, yeah. I want everybody to be comfortable on this tour. I don't want us to have to worry about like any kind of financial things. So we have perks, you know, show up to the show you plan to go to, come watch Soundcheck, come meet us. Come to the show that you want to go to, and uh, we'll give you my headphones. Listen to the new album months before anybody else does. <laughs> I, I'm dying. That's cool. For a fan to hear the new record and tell me what they think, because yeah. no one's, heard it. you know, the only people that have heard it are people like Chris Rabb and my brother. And yeah. Stuff like that. I'm dying to have a fan hear it. So that's one of the perks. Come backstage after a show and put my headphones on. I'll play the record for you. The whole thing, all the way through, private. No one else is allowed back there. You listen to it. That's cool. Tell me what you think. And that's the most important part. But for them, of course, listening to it will be. But I, I just can't wait to hear what any fan that wants to be a part of that perk will say. Yeah. I'm getting rid of a lot of stuff that's been rotting in my closet that people have wanted for years. Ooh, what's that? This is an EP that came out in 2000. Disengage the Simulator EP. Shit. Everybody's like, do you have any of those? And I was like, well, yeah, I do, but I have to keep them for myself. That's just hoarding. So I said, you know what? I'm investing my time, and I am all about this tour and this new record. Why have I been holding on to all this stuff? Like, all the different colors of Volume 1, you know? Like yeah. Live at Mr. Small's, the CD. 
Oh, shit. I haven't put that up yet. But, I want um, that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all available in uh, my Big Cartel store, which is cknrockandmetal.bigcartel.com. Nice. So it's C-K-Y-R-O-C-K-A-N-D-M-E-T-A-L dot B-I-G-C-A-R-T-E-L dot Z-O-M. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of bands go out there and they beg for money. I don't like that. They have nothing to offer. And I'm not going to take anybody's money unless you offer them something special. So anybody that, that wants to come on tour can, uh, we have, you know, perks. You come backstage, like I said, listen to the record, watch a sound check. A dedicated song to you. I mean, one of the things that I want to do is have somebody come up and sing a song. Nice. You know? That could be a cool perk. Yeah. Know? There's no limits. So that's rad. The response has been great. Like I just started it a day and a half ago, and we're already doing really well. So I'm just going to keep adding things. I have T-shirts from 2001 that are brand new that nobody's ever worn. I have all kinds of vinyl and 45s and cd all kinds of shit that i need to get out of here posters pendants belt buckles stuff that i shouldn't have anymore it's just taking up room i actually found this shit i think i had one of your belt buckles arm. back in the day oh yeah but yeah, let me let me just show you something i here. think i did there are belt buckles but there's a few and there's one that i found that i'm not sure anybody first of all look at this wallet i don't even know if this wallet ever got me brand wow. new um Christ. Yeah. Da, 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 da. We have, I have these lighters. Like this. I remember this is the prototype for a lighter that we never made. Huh. They wanted me to approve it. They're like, what do you think of this? And I thought, yeah, it could work, you know. But this is the only one that exists. It's a prototype. That's rad. I got, you know, of course, the lighter that they eventually did release, you know. Still in the wrapping. I have just. So much stuff. I want to find the belt buckle there. Okay. We had the regular, like, silver ones. But I'm not sure if we ever released this one. Oh, I never saw that. Yeah, no, because sure. I feel new, like, I think a, the one that I had was, it was like die cut. Like it, silver, it was silver with the... With Yeah, and, and there was no border around the letters. It was just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut out, like, silver, like, metal logo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one was like... But this one, I think... That's cool. That's like the classic, for people who can't see it, it's it's the classic red and orange-yellow uh, CKY logo with a black oval behind it. Right. And it may have been released. I'm not sure. It might be a prototype that never got released, but I don't need this stuff anymore. <laughs> I have a bunch of T-shirts because I'm all about my new band. I'm all about this tour. I'm all about this next record. If I don't get rid of all this stuff... yeah. Fans are asking me all about, well, do you have this? What do you have? I want to complete this collection. I just want just get rid of everything. Use the, the, the money that they contribute to put into the tour. And I'm a happy motherfucker. Yeah. What is that? Like an arm bracelet or something? Yeah, I think it's like a, a snap-on like leather uh, bracelet. Leather yeah. yeah, it's like a leather wristband. I never understood these. I remember Chad used to wear them a lot, but I was like, what are these for? They don't soak <laughs> up sweat. They're not like sweatbands. But yeah, I still never took it out of the package because I never needed to. There's a lot of shit in here, man. That's I, great. This is a fucking CKY 14 karat gold ring. Wow. Which I'm not going to sell because somebody made this for me. Yeah. It's, yeah. But uh, 
I'm looking yeah. at your site now. It looks like you also do lyric sheets and yes. there's all kinds of shit on here. My dad had these made. Oh, cool. There was only two made, one for my dad and one for me, which really gave me new respect for my dad because I never thought that he would do something like that. But he, he got this made for me and he made himself one. They're like solid gold. So I'm not getting rid of this, but... Yeah, that's sentimental. Yeah. But anyways... There's a lot of shit in here. If you just look around my room, man, it's just yeah. so much crap. Like, a lot of it I love. You know, a lot of it I want to keep. But it's stuff, all this stuff that has to do with my old bands, old T-shirts that have never been worn, all these clothes sitting in my closet, brand new, never been touched. You know, they need a new home. They need to get out of my house and go to somebody that really wants them. So that's what that's all about. So are there announcements uh, when you drop a wave of, of merch on here or should people just watch CKY rock and metal dot big cartel website just watch it because I'm going to it's kind of like a, am I in the mood to post stuff right now okay uh, it's, yeah, it's first come first served if you're paying attention yeah sometimes people get mad at me like why didn't you tell me that you were putting that up and I'm just like why didn't you tell me you wanted it yeah Darren so, if, if you don't text me when you put up the live album I'm going to be sad okay <laughs> <laughs> I know it's sad because I think it might be my only copy, but... Damn. I got this European answer can be found. Nice. It's on Mercury Records, which I thought was weird. Yeah. They didn't, Mercury didn't even tell us they put this out. We ended up auditing them, and they, we ended up winning $65,000. Nice. They tried to release this without telling us. I said, where's all of our royalties for... Your European answer can be found. And they were like, we never put that out. I was like, excuse me, I'm holding three <laughs> copies in my hand right now. You're telling yeah. me that you never released it. But if I hadn't caught it or if the band hadn't caught it, we would have been scammed out of $70,000. Yeah. Always catch shit before it happens. Well, keep an eye out for all these rare versions and... Uh unreleased prototypes and things you've got up the sleeve so uh, again follow it is cky rock and metal big com, and then you can go see 96 bitter beings on tour starting july 19th in san diego 19th fantastic so um thank you so much for being on the show i hope that i can see you in portland it's about a hundred miles from me, so if I can afford the gas in my van, I will come up and see you guys. Are we gonna be able to afford the gas in our van? That's like the biggest. Yeah. That was that's like the phrase that everybody says the most. Yeah. But come out and have a good time. I appreciate your help in uh, trying to get connected to everybody that wants to get connected with us. Absolutely, man. Glad to have you. Anytime. All right, that is our show. Huge thanks to Darren for coming on. We threw this together so last minute. He called me. I didn't even know whose number it was. He said, Samuel, let's do it tonight. And so at midnight, we threw this together just from memory of what I know about his work, and we had a hell of a time. So you can catch 96 Bitter Beings on tour right now, starting today. Pre-order their new album, Synergy Restored. This song is called Vaudeville's Revenge. Revenge. 